right, here we are, another week of Screen Heat Miami, getting hotter than ever. Yes. On the show. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really, really a big one because, you know, we, we're, we're going through a tremendous loss in the industry. I think that um, for the African-American community and the Black community around the world, the greater Black Pan-African diaspora, uh, we lost a big one, Chadwick Boseman. And so, you know, losing such a tremendously talented actor, I came to find out that he's also an amazing singer, um, just a tremendous all-around talent, really does leave a big void. We lost Chad, Chadwick Boseman to what people are finding out now uh, is cancer. And he's had it for a few years without no one really knowing it. I mean, that, that's, that's a big one. And Right. No, absolutely. It's a huge loss, a great talent in Hollywood that's been doing so much, you know, uh, in and of himself, just as a great actor, but also, you know, because he's, he's so much helped spearhead that, that big diversity movement now with all the body of work that he's done, you know, not just obviously playing Black Panther, the title role there, but, you know, him, you know, all these sort of breakthrough roles. I mean, uh, Jackie Robinson, you know, just playing all these iconic historic roles roles as well. Thurgood Marshall. Yeah, Thurgood Marshall, just like a body of work that just really spoke for itself. And, and, you know, and they're now obviously digging through a lot of his interviews, finding that obviously a lot of those choices were intentional. And he really wanted his acting work to really make a difference in the world. And it did. And it has the world. And you said it right. It made it has made a tremendous impact in the world. And when you talk about Black Panther, you know, for again, the African-American community, it's not just the African-American community, the black community around the world. I think for every community, it lent a sense of pride and a sense of togetherness. When a film like Black Panther really hit and resonated around the world, it touched everyone. It was a global phenomenon, still is. I watched it already two times. Once before he passed away, actually, I wa- for whatever reason, I watched it the night before he passed. I don't know. Just something really got at me. And then the family got together and we watched it again. So, you know, that, that's, that, that, that's a tough one. I watched his other movie, the, the crime thriller, um, and I can't remember the name, something, something 22. The name escapes me right now. And just watching that film, you wouldn't have known that he was going through all of what he went through. But in watching that film, you know, you could kind of see just little subtleties that allowed you to have an understanding of the strength that this man had and what he pushed through, really, to, to make it happen. I saw an interview with one of his castmates um on the five bloods which is spike lee's film that's on netflix right now and he said that he had no idea he thought that chadwick boseman was you know just becoming special is what he said uh that he's if she's success success and he and he was just uh you know being special he had people there uh someone to massage his feet he had another 
a therapeutic specialist to massage his back and his wife was there. And, you know, he still went through everything everyone else went through. They had uh, 40 pound backpacks that they had to lug around up mountains, you know, long distances, just, you know, for the film's sake. And he didn't battle ash. He didn't complain. So yeah, yeah. It's remarkable when you consider the physicality of some of his even most recent roles, uh, you know, through, like you said, the rigorous training that has to go into doing, you know, a film of that nature, uh, as well as Black Panther and, you know, having to kind of bulk up and really look and act like a superhero, right? You know, when he was having such a struggle. Uh, but yeah, our hearts definitely go out to the family, to the industry. I know we're still kind of reeling from that one. Uh, but, you know, obviously that he has definitely left a legacy uh, at such even such a young age. So, you know, Wakanda forever. There you go. You don't see me, but I'm I'm doing my little X across the across the chest. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, we should probably we kind of just skip through this. Uh, obviously, we wanted to get to Chadwick right away. But, you know, this is Screen Heat Miami uh, with your co-host, J.O. Martinez and Evan Sharpley. Uh, each and every week, bringing you the heat. Brought to you, as always, by our good friends at Kajik Multimedia, Cinevision, Chemical, and the Miami Media and Film Market with our very special guest today, a man who has made tremendous inroads in the music industry, in the media industry, across digital, across platforms, across hell and high water to bring great content to the Seth world. Seth Shackner. Seth Shackner. <laughs> I, I consider Seth, uh, and I called him this when I've had him for a couple of panels now. One of them was for the Miami Film Festival, and I call him a media futurist. And when you hear this interview, you are going to hear how he's been at so many different access points in terms of the industry moving forward. And this has been really incredible, you know, to hear about his career and how he has not only been a part of, but helped to push a, a lot of this along. Everything from, you know, the transformation of music from analog to digital, and then from digital to streaming, which of course runs hand in hand and parallel to the film industry, the film and TV industry. It's all the same. And especially now, it's all one and the same. So, you know, he's going to speak on not only that evolution, but trends moving forward. And that's as important as anything because everyone is trying to figure out what's going on. It's crazy. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're totally right about that. Everyone is trying to figure out what's going on and what's next. And it's great to have someone like Seth, who's so well versed across multiple media platforms and really truly understanding the convergence of, of modern day media, as well as where it's going. So I think, I think the futurist title is definitely apropos. So we're very excited to jump into that conversation in just a few minutes. But uh, we did have another couple of Disney related stories that we wanted to get to. Ain't no story like a Disney story, right? That's uh, right. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. We're excited to talk about some very interesting things going on in the House of Mouse, including one of its former Mouseketeers, Kevin Mayer, who jumped ship to become the CEO of TikTok. Yeah, that's crazy. Right? He became the CEO, and just a few months later, he had to run back into a mouse hole. 
Now, I don't know what mouse hole he, he's running back into. Right. Probably not Disney. But, um, he, yeah, he resigned as the chairman of TikTok. And uh, as the chairman president of TikTok. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the tumultuous times that TikTok happens to be going through, you can imagine that not many people would want to shepherd that ship through mm-hmm. the waters. Oh, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Kevin, because, you know, it, it, it was so interesting. I, obviously, a lot of it had to go with the sort of political back and forth between the U.S. and China. And there's been some assertions made on this side that TikTok was actually being used as sort of a, a spyware by the Chinese government to sort of influence American culture and gather data. And so there was, you know, something passed at the executive level that I guess the idea is at some point, if TikTok didn't sell their U.S. operations off to an American company, they would have have to shut down and be banned in America altogether. Well, I, I think it, it was even before that, forget about selling it to an American company. They just wanted it shut down, period. They didn't care right. if it was sold. And Microsoft stepped up and said, okay, you know, we, we want to go ahead and take it off the chopping block. And another couple of companies have stepped up, but we still don't know if it's going to happen. I mean, you know, to be in the red zone, uh, not mm. a lot of companies want to be in that situation or are big enough to be in that right. situation where they're in the in that hot zone definitely in in this day and age it is more difficult it is tough to traverse you know these pathways when you're being targeted you know and absolutely and, and, yeah no, you're and, totally right it was he definitely stepped into a very sort of precarious situation yeah and and in this environment being targeted in such a way that it could permeate in every facet of your life. You know, there's death threats and all kinds of things going on that you, know, you just don't want to be a part of. And it has, and, and it doesn't always have to do with just the business of it. It has to do with, you know, the environment. And I, I'm going to leave it there because I don't want, I don't want to be a part of any environments either. But, you know, TikTok has had such a meteoric rise. And what I wonder is, you know, there are a lot of companies that are here that are Chinese-based or based in other places. So does that mean that those companies need to shut down? Um, I don't know. There's a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, definitely more questions than answers at the moment. But, you know, yeah, it was an interesting risk that Kevin Mayer took. You know, he was essentially... I would say the number two, number three guy at Disney before he left. I think part of the reason internally, obviously not a lot that's disclosed, but the fact that he was also passed up for the CEO job once Bob Iger decided to retire, they went with another Bob, with Bob Chapek, who ran coincidentally their theme park division, which is not doing well. Right now, whereas Mayer is more in charge of content, most notably helping in the launch of Disney Plus, uh, which is doing well and kind of segues us into our next story. But, you know, there is a lot of talking about politics within the Disney verse, within the corporate structure of Disney, those those high level C-suite positions, you know, those are very, very political positions in and of themselves. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see now where Disney kind of steers their ship. But speaking of which, Mulan, our We're back big to Mulan. saga, finally released as a premium offering on Disney Plus last weekend, which did see a 68% spike in 
Disney Plus app downloads. I knew it. I knew it. It was a double entendre there with Disney. Not only you know trying to recoup some of that money from such uh, that's one of their biggest budgeted movies, you know, for this year, releases for this year, but also the double-edged sword, pun intended, um, was you raise your subscriptions, and it did. So it did both. So that, I think, for me, was one of the biggest kernels because I run a company, I run a production company, and I want to see if my company is getting paid or if they are putting out content. I want to see that content have as many legs as possible. We have a film right now that we were paid to do, to produce, and now it's blazing through the festival circuit as well. You know, so, and, and it's winning awards. So for us, you know, it, 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 it's winning on a, on a couple of different levels. I think the calculus for Disney on this was, hey, you know, if we put this out on our own service, not only will we, and there's statistics, you know, they had to run the numbers, but not only will we get a certain amount of money for it, if we get the subscription up as well, you know, we'll recoup, but, you know, a, at least a bit of the cost of that film. So. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. So, so we could say the gamble paid off a, a lot of it again, unlike the traditional box office numbers or Nielsen ratings, a lot of it is internal data. So it's very unclear you know, to us, unless Disney decides to share it, obviously, you know, just how much of that spike was due specifically to Mulan, how many of those people subscribed to purchase Mulan in addition to the subscription versus, you know, because Disney did kind of backtrack a little bit where they said any Disney Plus subscriber would be able to stream Mulan as part of the general service starting in December. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they're kind of, even when they made that big $30 announcement, they were still kind of tweaking the language at, throughout the process, you know, based I'm sure on feedback they were getting from their, their core audience in terms of how ultimately they would handle this uh, versus future releases, you know? So I think that the gamble may have paid off. We're not sure exactly how, but, you know, definitely uh, there was a slightly bigger spike, to be fair, with Hamilton, uh, which was included in the package. But again, we don't know specifically how much of these new subscribers also paid the $30 premium. I think once those numbers are clear, we'll have a much clearer picture as to whether this strategy worked and how Disney may potentially steer more towards this model in the future away or maybe create some sort of a hybrid in between. Uh, but, you know, to your point, and I have two, two points on this, to your point from last week, one thing that they've done from the time that they announced, and I think since last week, they've made it explicitly clear that this is a one-time thing. This is mm. the only time that they're going to do it. And they keep pushing that and pushing right. it and pushing it. So that's one thing. Second right. thing, um, I saw Milan. I saw it with the family. I paid the $30. You saw Milan, okay. I did, yeah. And it's really good. It's great. It's excellent. You know, there are a couple of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, areas that, they, it, you know, could have been a little bit tighter. But, you know, it is, it is that film. You know, it is that blockbuster. It has that, you know, gravitas. It has an epic, epic vibe to it. A hundred percent. Jet Li, Jet Li wow. crushed it as the emperor. Um, it was really great to see him back on screen. There was a lot of questions about his health. You know, then he, he just didn't, he said, he said nothing. And so he's come back and he said, look, 
At Dip Milan, I've been a little bit more selective about what I'm doing. He had an, another incident that affected his, his life tremendously. So mm-hmm. he just said, you know, a couple of years ago that I'm going to focus on what I feel is most important. It was his family. So, but I mean, you could see him in the film. He looks great. Um, it was, you know, he only has like a couple of fighting sequences. So not real fighting, but, you know, action sequences. But um, the lead actress, she also, I mean, it's, it's, it's on her shoulders. So, you know, it was amazing. A lot of parallels to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And that's one thing that I, I loved is, you know, it was very empo- women empowering without being pandering. And so it's a woman's film, ultimately, but done in a way where um, it's the strength of resolve and the strength of the human spirit. So, yeah, but there are other controversies and some, and some of these controversies I didn't know before I watched it. Maybe I, 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 I might have been on more on the fence if I would have known some of these controversies. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of the, the, you know, it's like they went from the $30 premium, which we thought was the big controversy. Now it's shifted into the sort of human rights sphere uh, where apparently Disney has officially come under fire because in the credits they thank Chinese groups linked to detention camps. So uh, particularly with, uh, I believe, the Muslim community in China. And so that, uh, in addition to the fact that the the lead character or actress that you were referring to, I'm going to muffle her name prior, but Lu Yifei, right, Uh, uh, did tweet support for the Chinese government's police enforcement in Hong Kong during their protests as well. And now seeing that the Chinese government, these sort of groups that were responsible for these human rights violations uh, in mainland China as well were thanked by Disney in the credits that that is drawing a lot of ire from the human rights community around yeah. the world. I, I, you know, I have, I don't have as much issue with the lead actress and, and her commentary because she's just one person. And so, you know, you can do a film and you could have so many people in the film and still not know their exact views. You can try your best, but that's one person. It's different when it's an entire company. Right. So yeah. with her, I wasn't as concerned. You know, I'm, I feel that, you know, there, I'm all for independence, you know? So right. I, I'm not going to say, you know, one way or the other, you know, and, and be political about it, but that, that's her viewpoint. That's just her viewpoint. The company, companies can't control what one person tweets of what one person says on the other hand a company can control their messaging and what they're right. all about and so right. yeah that that would have put me more on the fence about whether i was going to watch it or not that's a tough one yeah yeah and it's interesting again because disney's such a well-known you know family sort of brand uh, globally uh and obviously they're being held to the fire but you know i think it goes beyond the film and media industry obviously this is way beyond the scope of screen heat miami is that you know all any american company doing business in china there's kind of like that double-edged part in the pun sword uh, things that we're still kind of you know sort of immersing yourself into whether it's tiktok or disney thanking the government in Mulan, which I'm sure contractually they had to, you know, because I'm sure they received certain investment or credits uh, financing the film, you know, wanting this to be exposed to a wide Chinese audience that they had to capitulate to uh, in order for that to happen. So again, you know, we, we try to steer away from the politics here at Screen Miami as much as possible, but obviously this was directly related to how the film is being received outside of China as well. So definitely something that we'd like to follow. Yeah, we'll follow up on it for sure. 
But um, oh yes, but I think we should jump into our interview. We have such that's a great what I was going to say. Let's follow up right into Seth Shackner. Amazing interview. And if you want to know what happened, what's happening, and what's going to happen, you need to dig into this one. Absolutely. We'll be back on the other side. Here's Seth Shackner. We are here live remotely with the one and only Seth Shackner, a good friend of us here at Screen Heat Miami, uh, a wonderful uh, member of our industry here. You know, I know you've moved out west now, Seth, but you're always part of the the bigger family here in Miami. So we'll never let you go. Thank you. Thank you both. That's cool. I love it. I love it. I love being with you guys. And uh, I know I saw you at Nappy before all this crazy stuff with the pandemic happened. And um, yeah, I, I still feel connected in so many different ways. And it's it's awesome. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, so I've I've um, I've actually worked with you on panels before. I've had you for one of my panels for the Miami Film Festival. Um, I remember a really great one at the Tower Theater, if I remember right, in Little Havana, right? Amazing experience, to say the least. Um, And so the way that I always introduce you, Seth, is a media futurist. And I'm going to stick with that because all of our intersecting points and the evolution for me with you and your career has always been about of course, what's going on now, you know, in, in the greater media world, because it's the intersection of music and film and television and, and how your career intersects in all of those. But also, you know, you've always been on the forefront of what's happening and what's going on in the future. And that's very important, especially now, because no one knows even billion dollar companies are trying to figure out what's going to happen. But we'll get to that momentarily. Yeah. All right. I definitely uh, want our listeners to hear about your journey because our show is as much about the journeys of the people that we interview as it is about what they currently do. So um, can we start with a little, a little Seth, a little young, fresh, trying to figure out what he's going to do? I love it. Seth. Okay, you want to go way back then, and I'll. I'll we got to go way back. Intro. You want to tell it? <laughs> no elevator intro. I mean, we like way know. back. You want to go? You want to go back to the the homeland and and where I, you know, the the proverbial house and all that. That's no, right. That's cool. It's funny because, you know, there's been all this stuff in the news lately. I think uh, just seeing stuff on social media with, uh, what was it today? I think I saw that Springsteen's Born to Run was released 45 years ago. You know, I got friends that worked on the record and I was thinking back to the music my folks turned me on to when I was, you know, seven or eight years old. And they were pretty cool, actually. And um, I grew up in the D.C. suburbs, actually, um, born in San Francisco. Uh, My daddy just I was so lucky. I had just a wonderful father who um, was a doctor and did some time in in the service, military service, and stationed outside of D.C., a place called Fort Belvoir. And we were raised there, my sister and I. And um, just a really nice place to grow up. And I still got a lot of friends there, too. A lot of my Miami friends don't know I'm from D.C. They think 
that guy Shackner, he's from New York or something, but I'm, I'm from DC, East coast boy. And, um, but yeah, I mean, maybe for kind of the flavorings of this podcast, if you will, um, you know, music was always a big part of who, who I was. And I still remember my folks, you know, and they didn't push it on me, but, you know, turning me on to music like, well, the Beatles and listening to let it be, but even things like the Woodstock soundtrack and Carol King's tapestry and Arlo Guthrie. And I, I sort of had some of that stuff, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know what it is, fused into me a little bit, seeing seeing bands like the Carpenters, you know, as, as a kid growing up. And it made a bit of a dent on me in a big way. And, um, and I think that's kind of in some way maybe informed who who I am. I, I wrote a lot during school, high school. You know, I was like, a, what was it? A music editor at the high school paper and volunteered to write it. That was at the Potomac Almanac, you know, on rock stuff. And, and, you know, at that time when I was growing up, you know, I'm I'll, for full disclosure, I'm in my fifties and I'm not going to go into any more detail on the number, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, the, the new wave was happening. Right. And I, I was a little, a little young to appreciate the real like punk explosion in music, but, but I got to, and I, I missed the Beatles for sure. So I grew up listening to artists like power pop artists um, as opposed to the Beatles. But, um, but I got to experience a lot of the, you know, initial kind of post-punk new wave stuff growing up in the DC burbs. You know, I saw bands like the clash and also the Ramones many times, all sorts of great stuff. I could, I could, I could bore you with all that. stuff. I'm sure you guys have seen too, but, um, but it made a big dent on me. And, and, um, I went up to, to school uh, in New York City, and I w- was kind of introduced to my university through journalism. I went up to Columbia University one afternoon at a journalism conference, and the sun was shining, and people were sitting out in the steps. And I was like, oh, my God, I can go to a school like this and also go to Greenwich Village. You know, I'm in, and, and that was the only place I wanted to go. So I, I wound up going to New York and spent a good chunk of uh of my life up there after that period of time. Um, but if, if you'd like me to keep going on the topic, I mean, I think um, I, you know, had kind of a mix of, of liberal arts uh, that gets, you know, kind of, uh, you don't have much of a choice when you go to Columbia, the curriculum hasn't changed in a, in a long time. So there's some courses you're going to take no matter what you do. And that that's absolutely great. Um, but I did get a chance to to kind of work music and entertainment into what I was doing there. I still remember, I tell my kids now, I mean, I served coffee at Rolling Stone, you know, with my first internship, you know, to a great guy named Ira Robbins, who was a music journalist and um, was kind of my first boss. And um, I did a couple of years sort of in like banking and international business after college, but went to, went back to business school and um, did a little bit of time in like analysis and finance. And, and I think from, from that period of time, I kind of started to work my way into the business. Yeah. Wow. So I, I, I wanted to jump in there, Kevin, because yeah. I had this conversation on Facebook the other day, but you know, I claim that, you know, going back to your formative years, the music that you listen to as an adolescent is the music that you'll be most emotionally responsive to the rest of your life. Oh. And I want you to either confirm or deny that. And if you confirm, what were the jams that you still listen to now that take you right back to those growing years, let's call it? Oh, I can definitely confirm it unquestionably. And it's funny because I think I saw someone's published some research recently in the last year or two on exactly this topic about how you associate you know, periods of time with music. So, oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, for me, um, 
that period around, I don't know, um, 78 to, to maybe 84 was sort of like the prime years where, where I kind of associate that. And I mean, you know, uh, the music I listened to was mostly kind of, um, I guess, post-punk new wave type stuff. I just was listening, you know, walking the dog this morning to, to the clash and to some old Springsteen because of the anniversary. Um, and some of those records, you know, a London calling, I still remember when it came out and I think I got a chance to see them, you know, in 1979 at university of Maryland when I was a kid, you know, a teenager. So, um, and later at Shea stadium open for the who that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, artists like the clash, Elvis Costello, Kestrel maneuvers in the dark, psychedelic furs, um, certainly made a big dent. I mean, the sex pistols, of course. Um, yeah, lots of British stuff. I think, you know, like when, when I grew up, um, I think it's fair to say it was before you know and i'm generalizing it and i'm sure people would smack me over the head and say you're missing this or that but you know i mean it was, it was probably before hip-hop had exploded in a big way at least in the states i still remember um you know when beastie boys or run dmc came out that sort of thing tribe called quest it might have been a little bit later so the the rockish stuff made more of an impact on me perhaps the new wave than um you know than some of the hip-hop and, and really the new wave alternative i kind of hated corporate rock at the time you know if you Sometimes I, I see these, and I don't want to make statements, but whatever, bands like Sticks or Kansas or Foreigner that you know, I thought were sort of corporate rock, they weren't like what I was listening to. I was listening to so the ones that I thought were cooler at the time. So, um, yeah, and it, it, it still makes an impact on me. And, um, you know, it's so cool now. It's just I see a lot of music coming out that... I mean, the Psychedelic Furs just released a record, and it's a it's a great record, and and I'm I've been going back and consuming their catalog massively, and and I think you know good 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 work still stands up. Some of these tracks still sound as great as they did 40 years ago, at least in my view, you know. So mm. um, so some of that stuff still still hits um, still hits me in an emotional way for sure. So long-winded yeah. answer but i agree dude <laughs> <laughs> we love long-winded answers so you know that's very very uh apropos for uh for screen heat miami for but, the format <laughs> yeah definitely but you know it makes me think of so certainly a lot of that music is in the soundtrack of what's going on in terms of television and film. And so you hear all of those and, and commercials and, you know, so yep. you hear all of that richness in you know, what's happening now. But, um, you know, I had uh, a breakfast that turned into a, I guess you say a brunch with Stevie Van Zandt. Who's the oh, guitar wow. player? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, you know Bruce Springsteen's guitar player. Uh, we were <clears throat> looking to bring one of his projects here to Miami, and we we're very close to making it happen. Maybe it still will, but um, you know, there's a huge intersection with the music of that time and the evolution of music into what became the digital of now. And I think Apple, you know, was on the forefront of that. Um, you know, bringing a lot of those musicians into the Apple music and that whole podcast mm -hmm. movement and all of that. And what yeah. uh, Stevie Van Zandt was speaking on, he's very good friends with, um, now I'm forgetting his name, the, the, uh, the, he was the head of Apple music when, uh, when they bought Beats. From, oh, maybe, from, maybe Eddie Q or something like that, or? Uh, uh, Dr. Oh. Dre, partners with Dr. Oh. Dre. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll get his name in just a minute. Yeah. But, um, and so his conversation was as much about how that music evolution 
moved into Apple and then Apple moved into media and, you know, film and movies. And now they have Apple plus, which, you know, has some, some pretty great shows, but, yeah. uh, you know, this whole convergence of the heart and soul yeah. of what music was back then, I think was the nexus of the movement of what's happening with the digital for now. So That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. How, how has your music evolution, your background in the music industry then evolve into your career? How did you then, you know, take that musicality in, and, and forming it, form it into a career? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, on, on the, just, I mean, there's a couple of questions in there. They're both great. Uh, the first one's really interesting. I mean, and you know, I'm more of a biz dev guy, business person. We talk about that in a second with the boring stuff, whatever, maybe, I don't know, but, but on the creative side, which is really a great, I mean, really interesting question. Um, you know, it's funny because when I was growing up, I, I tell this to, to my teenagers and I, I, no doubt I date myself, you know, I'm like, do you know what I had to do to make a mixtape, you know, to, to propose to the girlfriend, whatever it was back in my day, I had to sit and listen to all this crappy radio for an hour and then pick up, you know, now you guys can just do a playlist and share it. And, you know, they roll their eyes a little bit, but I think, you know, to some degree, like there was like kind of a, um, I don't know, like a balkanization, if you will, of these platforms. Like I, you know, I've viewed myself at this period of time as like a purist music guy listening to, you know, all these cool artists. In fact, I didn't really like Springsteen when I was in high school because I thought he was too mainstream or whatever. Now I appreciate how amazing he was. And so like my exposure to some of these other, like I was more of a music person than a TV head. And, um, and I think it just, whether it was my personal experience later in life or just the way a lot of these platforms converged, um, particularly in the last few months as I've been, we all been sitting home during the pandemic streaming away. Like I, I watched mad, you know, all these madman episodes again and, and uh, you know, pictures, you know, shorts on Netflix, whatever the, the series love, you know, we've been doing a lot of stuff and just um, the amount marvelous mrs mazel just the music that's embedded in it almost speaks to speaks to me in certain episodes emotionally as well and um and you know i wind up shazamming while i'm sitting in my room basically which is probably what apple wants you to do right and so um but that didn't come until kind of to later in life but um but i will tell you just on the professional front you know and probably the, the, the biggest thing I'd say, just like particularly for people that um, I speak to students a lot out here in California or just around the country, um, you know, people looking to build careers in music, whatever, whatever that specific career path or function is like, you know, like, I guess I, I think it's, you're going to have to work just like you're going through anything in life to get to a point where those passions overlap with the professional stuff that you're actually going to be hired and hopefully paid to do. And like, I know for me, I came up through the business, um, the business area of different media companies. And I, I worked my way up through lots of different gigs around the country. You know, it wasn't until 10 years in or whatever the number was when there was sort of like that, maybe that overlap that you're describing could even roughly come into focus. You know, like I, I went to B school, business school, and I got out and, the opportunities that were available were not things that where you're going to be sitting around ideating in a studio over a script or in the A&R department deciding which artists to sign or even, you know, anything terribly creative was mostly analytics and that's fine. Uh, but just, you know, necessarily wasn't necessarily my, my dream was to get into the biz, if you will. But I, I worked my way up through, um, 
analytical jobs. You know, I worked uh, I worked at a big Japanese conglomerate for two years in New York called Mitsubishi, doing all sorts of investment work and random stuff like theme parks and buying rights for Japan and for motion pictures and all sorts of interesting licensing transactions and then moved out to LA in 92 um, with, with my fiance who's still, I'm still very lucky to call her my wife. We've been together for 30 years. Um, and I, I got a job like at 20th century Fox film studios, you know, which is now part of Disney and, you know, being a little bit, older now i can appreciate it. it was fabulous but you know they they put me in the um the deepest recesses of the accounting department you know L- literally um in fox plaza what is it Nak- nakatomi plaza from the movie everyone knows it on the third floor i still remember like <laughs> the diehard building <laughs> exactly and i mean literally i was like right next to the men's room i still remember that because befitting my status you know people literally used to walk into the men's room i won't go into detail but say hey man can i borrow your la times i'm like oh man when can i get you know when can i get into a better gig than this but they had me um you know modeling modeling the um you know all the dynamics of motion picture deals which were multi-platform to, to your point kevin um you know um through all sorts of different markets from we had a home video cassette market, a pay TV market, that sort of thing. And just modeling away like crazy. And I mean, I missed it for big pictures, like a, a true lies with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, we probably did that. Like, um, um, I mean, maybe 150 times basically, um, before we would green light it. And, you know, they had me sort of cutting my teeth from there. And so, and I, I moved from, from that, just picking up some work doing soundtrack modeling at the studio at the time into a, into another gig at, at something called MCA music. It's now called universal music, but kind of built the career path through these sort of experiential steps. Those were sort of the earliest steps I took. Um, but it wasn't until later in the career when, you know, I was like, I oh, mean, I really love my job and it really, you know, now I'm in the business cause you, you could, you could be modeling. If you're in a modeling role, you could, be modeling erasers or paper clips or flight inventory, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be films or any other type of intellectual property. So, yeah, I just want to jump in because everything that you mentioned is what's important today. Actually, you talked about analytics and really, you know, what made Netflix as big as it is, is the analytics it, and the data, the data that they gathered over time about, you know, their users and, their preferences. And so they already know before they release a film or before they do an original uh, product, what their users are looking at, what yeah. they will like, what they'll enjoy. And you, you mentioned the soundtrack. Soundtrack now is one of the most important sectors for musicians, you know, getting on those soundtracks, whether it's television or whether it's film or whether it's, yeah. you know, whatever it is, video games. So, it, it really feels like, and of course the accounting, we don't want, and the multi-platforming. So these are all buzz terms for now, for the current environment. And I think your point's incredibly important just in terms of like the analytics. You know, sometimes when people would say to me, like, like my first gig at Fox was, you know, we're modeling, we would do what are called estimates before pictures became approved. And so you might have a script or a budget for a negative cost, whatever it might be, or a picture you're picking up in whole or part from different markets. And, you know, people are going to have to spend money 
not just to buy it or produce it, but to market it. In the old days, we had something called prints and advertising. I guess I guess prints are another long vestige, you know, whether there used to be actual steel case movie prints that come off trucks. But um, but um, if someone says the question to you, well, how how could you possibly know what a movie is going to do? You know, how do you know how it's going to perform in theatrical, or how do you how do you know how it's going to perform internationally in syndication? Well, if you're in a position where you've charted all that data for years and years and you have not hundreds, but thousands of whatever they are, pictures, properties under your belt, actually you can make an assessment. And there may be certain markets, right? Like an HBO license usually charts directly to how a picture performs in theatrical release or in those days it did. So, so um, it's actually a lot more scientific than people think, you know, and, um, but boy, I mean, to learn the nuances of, of creative participations, you know, on, on, on your side of the entertainment world with, with artists and producers and directors and the definitions that lawyers create, what is a rolling break even, or, you know, um, what's the definition of net profit and why is this overhead allocated and why is video only included in the back end at 20%, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's a real language to learn. And it's not necessarily a language that everyone's happy with, but, um, and music for sure has got its own set of back end languages. And um, so I kind of, that's how I kind of cut my teeth learning that stuff, modeling it. Um, and um, definitely wasn't what I was planning on when I got in, for sure. I mean, it still isn't my strength, but, uh, you know, I say this to my teenagers, too, when they take in their, their exams, like, give math a chance. You know, you might wind up being better with those skills than you are in what you think is the easier to cool part, you know. So, anyway. Yeah, the math Well, that's, that's cool. actually – that is a really good point. I have to jump in there because, you know, it's – if you remember – Kevin, and we talked about this a few, many podcasts ago. Uh, my first sort of job in the industry was at what is now ICM Partners. Back then was ICM at 8942 Wilshire. And the reason I got in was specifically because the head of motion picture production accounting needed an assistant for a week as a temp. And that was literally my first job in the industry out there was helping this woman to go through contracts of, you know, Janusz Kaminski, which is Spielberg's DP and Roger Deakins and all these guys who were, you know, and you look at their contract and and what was brilliant, I was not a math guy, but the fact that I could sit there and look at these deal memos for these top level below the line artists and seeing how much detail was in there and how they were paid plus the residuals and the union fees and this and that, it was like a master's degree just by working in the accounting department. Yeah, no, no, absolutely for sure. And I mean, to to Kevin's earlier point, you know, I guess, um, you know, I've been out in LA for two, three years now. I mean, obviously the landscape's a lot different here. Um, You know, and I guess I presumably Netflix has got folks that have all this data internally and are are having this discussion amongst themselves. Amazon as well, you know, and um, uh, I don't know how similar it charts to to the days we're discussing, but it, it's it's definitely built on consumption data that they that they've got, and uh, it's got to be pretty awesome. Same time, you know, like before the pandemic happened, and hopefully we'll pull through this at some point. You know, there was a really like interesting hybrid here over the last year of, you know, still including theatrical in in the releasing right and everything from the oscars to to film owners to the studios trying to figure out these windows basically and and um you know netflix has even got directors like a scorsese who will say look i I didn't make the movie so that 
can be watched in someone's living room. I want it, you know, I want it in the Bruin theater. I, you know, I want it in the biggest theater in Manhattan, wherever it is. So, so ho- hopefully that debate still keeps going on. I, I for one love, love going to movie theaters. Right. No, absolutely. And it makes sense because, and there was a, a recent art article, you know, because of the pandemic that I think it was something to the effect of uh, Holly, the old Hollywood or Hollywood as we knew it has finally died. And now it's the world of the streamers, which are much more ruthless. And it's less of this sort of insider's club and more about strictly about the numbers and making the cut. And, you know, things are not as friendly as they were in the old days, Um, you know, before the streamers kind of took over, which has more of a Silicon Valley approach as opposed to, you know, the agent lunch that took three hours and, you know, you yeah. Ago and Spago and all the Agos. And now it's more like, you know, they even mentioned the Netflix executives all eating in the cafeteria of Netflix. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. They get free lunch there for sure. Google right. Lunch, like, whatever it is. Right. right. <laughs> whatever it is. Facebook, Google, great spreads every day, but it's all in-house. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 I want to get to, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Seth. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, yeah, so I want to get I want to get to that area because we definitely need to talk about, you know, what's going on now. But this is it's really interesting, Seth, that you saw and were a part of this transformation from an analog world into a digital yeah. world. And and, and I, I know that, you know, there were some things and tweaks that you were able to do to kind of, you know, move yeah. that forward. So can we talk about that that No, movement? sure. Yeah, thanks for keeping us on track. It's a great, it's a great point. No, so I was out here '95 actually at the time working at. It's now Universal Music. It was called MCA at the time. There used to be six major record companies at the time. No, only three left. And if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a thing. And um, I still remember our chairman, a brilliant dude, but also a funny guy uh, named Al Teller, who was you know pretty senior at CBS Records. Also goes way back. Um, I think trained as an engineer, but but running a multifaceted music holding company and a guy named Zach Horowitz, who I still work with bid and respect a lot. Um, like threw me this project that was like, I think it was like, there's this thing called the internet. What does it mean for us? You know, that, that was sort of the project. <laughs> the internet, like, <laughs> that new single thing. Up their hands too, when they threw it to me. And so, you know, at the time we were looking at it from like a, as you would expect a legacy media company to look at it. What does this mean for our distribution? Can we partner with IBM? And how can we control the products with watermarks and all sorts of other things so that this really doesn't get out of hand? You know, questions that people would just laugh at now. But um, but I was, you know, one of the people leading a study on that. This is 95. And, and, um, and you know, again, for the young people that are out there listening for from a career perspective, you know, I had um, a really good buddy, Roger Neal, who, I went to school with who is still a good friend who had um, left this town. He was in publishing and had gone to work at the startup in Washington, D.C., actually, at the time. And I still remember having dinner with him, uh, with our wives here in L.A. And he's like, I'm going to this startup. It's called an online service, and we're going to be building the media of the future. And I was like, that sounds pretty damn quirky, man. You know, good good luck with that. And you got to go to D.C. You know, I grew up there, but, you know. And, you know, about two months later, he called me and he was like, you know, he worked at America Online and, you know, they kind of called me and said, we need someone to come in and do a do a music channel for us. And they were also tooling around with this idea of owning their own content. So they started a venture with the film studio, too. And so I I moved from here. I was pretty unhappy to move here, even though 
I loved going back home to DC, but, but I, I was, I joined AOL at a very early stage of the company's existence, 95. And I was actually their first music guy and built their first music channel with the team there. And, um, I mean, it was like being dropped into a, uh, from a highly organized film studio environment, music label environment where you couldn't move left or right without someone telling you, here's, here's what the legal department thinks, or here's this, or here's that, to, um, you know, to like a summer camp or something, in a disorganized summer camp at that. And, you know, I still remember my first day at AOL. I, I, I walked into the room and there was, there was one of these old school Verizon phones sitting in this empty office with like a thousand post-it notes on it. You know, that, that was like my first, like, what the hell is going on at this place? And, and my, my person on my team was literally signing giant, you know, corporations to contracts, you know, to content deals with like just literally filling in 8% here, 10% there and signing and releasing. And it was, it was chaotic when I was there, but, um, you know, and my gig was to kind of manage this help kind of unwieldy group of music partners at the time and bring them into a channel. And um, it was a lot of fun and also kind of crazy. And we had partners from, you know, big, big ones that you'd expect like Viacoms and VH1s and MTVs and Rolling Stone to um, to ones that you wouldn't expect. Like, I mean, uh, I'm not kidding you. We had a community with uh, with Jimmy Buffett's fans called the Parrot Heads, and I can't was it, it was a Grateful Dead community that were managed by fan club folks. That, by the way, kicked royal butt on the big media companies in terms of usage and consumption and all sorts of stuff in between spin magazine record label sites um the house of blues online i could go through a lot of really cool old school ones um and i still remember getting sent to new york on uh was it the delta shuttle for my first big day of meetings for them and going into spin magazine on my first meeting and i got a great friend at Colby Hall, a bunch of other people um, that were there. And I still, I got, I got screamed at for like an hour. Like, what is this AOL thing? Who are these people that are actually using it? How come none of you guys answer the phone the way Hollywood people do? You know, when are we going to see our reports on our usage? Why can't we just have our own website? What do we need this AOL crap for? You know, and um, kind of like that for the next two years <laughs> to be honest with you and um but it, it changed my life a lot professionally and i got experience in the digital business and since that time um i've mostly been doing kind of new platform oriented work in, in digital um to your point about kind of fusion and conversion of platforms and um yeah i i spent a, a number of years beyond that i went to viacom for a couple of years and joined a really interesting arm of Liberty Media um, that held some super cool music assets. Um, one's called Sonic Net that was just one of the greatest downtown music uh, assets at the time and um, and had a nice little run there. And in, in 99, I, I got a chance to join um, what was at the time the world's biggest independent music group to help guide them on strategy and business development in digital. It was called Zamba recording group and the, the, the big label that everyone knew was dive records. So um, I joined up there in 99 and um, I had just a, something that became a really nice 11 year run with Sony from, from that point. Yeah. I mean, wow. There's, there's, there's a lot in there and you know, the, what, what's interesting is if our, our listeners, you know, AOL, uh, they had a music uh, platform, and this is before Spotify, 
<laughs> way before Spotify, before oh. Pandora, you know, before Tidal and a lot of these music streaming services. I went to about three years ago, um, a book signing. It, well, it was a huge event, you know, it was a part of a merge, which is a uh, like a, um, a tech conference here. Yeah, so, I love Emerge America, sure. Yeah, a part of it was uh, the CEO, uh, Steve Case, I believe his name is. Sure. Uh, of, of and AOL. Ted Leontis, who's a really close, good friend as well, so. Yeah, so Steve Case wrote a book. And the book was all about, you know, how AOL had its fits and spurts. And really, you know, AOL actually bought Time Warner. You know, this is kind of funny, you know, back in the day. And that didn't work out. They were too, uh, too far ahead of their time. But he talked about, you know, that happening. How AOL, you know, huge, huge company. People still pay for AOL, believe it or not. Um, but he, he, he also talked about their music division. And, you know, if he had any regrets how that music division was the precursor to Spotify, Pandora, uh -huh. Tidal. And if he yeah. could have done a few tweaks, it would have been in the forefront of all of that. It was in the forefront, but in terms of its presence, um, because it, I mean, uh -oh. AOL, that, that particular music division was effectively doing what Spotify does now and what, um, Pandora does and title and some of it, it streamed music basically. It's interesting. And, it's just, a, yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot of, sorry to jump in. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. I mean, what one top, first I never have heard Steve say that I, I'm going to have to email him and uh, noodle him on that a little bit. But, um, but um, you know, one thing I'd say just top level, like um, a lot of what AOL was all about. Um, he used to have this thing, I think it was called the five C's community content. I can't remember what the other three were, but, but a lot of it is, um, that are really relevant when you look at even some of the tech titans today, even a TikTok or, a, you know, Triller or whatever, um, just some of the best services like Facebook or Snap. I think a lot of the the themes of what, what we all were trying to do there at the time are still really relevant. I see others doing it. I mean, it's just some of these things are when when you come out in the market, what's available, whether it's bandwidth or we, we happen to be charging people by the hour initially, which people would be, I think, you know, <laughs> right. Well, but you know, I mean, and, um, you know, I was there after, after they had carpet bombed the country with the CD ROMs in the nineties. If you remember those on magazines, <laughs> when we had, uh, such enormous usage that we had, you know, outages and a number of States, uh, you know, Capitals and legal representatives were rather unhappy with the company. It suited actually, and so um, and I saw that model be blown up into an all-you-can-eat model, and my team got blown up, et cetera, et cetera. And it's always interesting to hear these these perspectives because we had this little channel that that um that was doing well. I mean, there's a lot of funny anecdotes. If maybe best served over over a drink, or if we have dinner, or in some other context but I'm, I'm loaded up with just some of the greatest stories just because of that period of time i had artists calling me with just you know these requests from i mean picking up my phone and having lou reed on the line asking me these absurd questions about how he gets his email when he's on tour <laughs> sending sending private mac versions to mick jagger's how i mean just stuff like that that you wouldn't believe that that just because it was such early state and you know you didn't really appreciate it then. Um, I mean, we I believe my team, me and my team actually did the first official digital download. We did a single with with the artist John Mellencamp track called uh, Key West, their mezzo that 
I think it was the first we did officially. You know, and it took an hour to get the track or 45 minutes. We thought that was amazing. I think we, we did 80,000 of them. So, um, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff. We'd have to do another session to go through the stuff that led from that. This is even before commercial downloads, which came, you know, about six years later that, you know, Mr. Steve Case and Eddie Q and, and excuse me, Steve Jobs and Eddie Q brought about during the Apple iTunes launch. So, um, right. But then I guess sort of the bridge to that and sort of the in-between and another big disruptor that really kind of just shook the industry was Napster, right? When that came around in like 1999 uh, yeah. and sort of the impact that that had. Will you talk a little bit about the impact that that had on the sure. industry? Sure. Just reading Napster this morning, the remnants of it, Rhapsody, were sold. Actually, I saw it to a to a VR company. Um, um, well, look, I mean, at a top level, during you know, and it, this is really top level, um, but you know, it's it's probably safe to say that the recorded music industry didn't do the maybe the the best and quickest job of trying to accommodate or acclimate itself to all these new digital channels of consumption, and they weren't by the way just digital because there was something with cds that there was probably just as much cd pressing going on and sharing amongst friends maybe equal to or even more than the digital piracy that and had kind of looser sort of legal definitions because of of fair use which is a was a question at the time but um yeah piracy was happening in the background from yeah the late 90s up until you know, the mid 2000s when we really had a good response to it as an industry, basically. And if you just think about trying to launch paid digital services of any stripe, whether you're selling a la carte downloads or you're trying to do premium streaming later, that's a hard sort of upstream, you know, battle up, you know, to swim upstream to compete against that. And uh, that was going on in the background during, during a lot of what we were trying to do. Now, when I joined Jive Records Zamba in 99. I was there for four years before the company became something called BMG. That was a period roughly 98, 99 to 2003 where the recorded music industry was kind of experimenting with like early stage models of digital music. And, you know, the first types of digital downloads that were sold in formats that were not compatible with each other, that had restrictions digital rights management software wrapped around the actual pieces of content. And we were doing things that we thought would be moderately constructive steps, like trying to sell downloads for $2.99 or $3.99, whatever it is, you know, because we, we didn't want to kill off our physical CD business, which was not dead at the time. It was still around and still a, a big priority for us. So, so it, it took until around 2003 for the iTunes store to launch and I've got a lot of friends that were involved with that. Um, really smart people that had to sit in a room and sort of say, let's do something that's simple and easy, that's tied to a device that is reasonably priced, that, that won't confuse the public. And I think that went a long way towards, I think, helping build something legitimate. Yeah. So now we're moving more in, into the digital sphere. Um, you talked a little bit about distribution and um, content, which is another really big buzzword. And content comes in the form of, you know, whether it's a song or whether it's a movie or whether it's a TV show. And now it's all fusing together. Now this um, brings me back to the name I was trying to remember earlier, Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. Who, you know, when they uh, 
when Apple purchased uh, Beats, yeah. Jimmy Iovine then effectively became uh, president uh, there of yeah. uh, a, a sector of, of Apple. And that had to do with music and it had to do with their, you know, te- burgeoning, you know, television um, division. Yeah. Yeah. Or t- streaming division or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, you know, they've always, you know, sort of been on the forefront of things in terms of, you know, this fusion from the analog world into the digital world. Um, yeah. But I just want to talk about how, uh you know, you moved into this whole digital world and then into what is happening and was happening and is happening now with this exchange of content, how content now has become more democratized and, you know, sure. what was happening with streaming before COVID and now it's a whole different thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, we're jumping around a little bit, but I'm glad you're sort of roughly keeping us on track because I think, you know, and I think, again, I come from, uh, you know, the the music world. And so I saw we were maybe on the front lines of, of you know, getting hit by piracy, us and the newspaper guys, you know, and, you know, you, you could say that we, we got, you know, shot at before we could get out of the trenches or get off the starting blocks. You know, we had all this piracy really hurting us basically. So, you know, there's a whole set of stuff that happened with piracy that I wasn't, or maybe the folks that ran our trade organization, lawyers were involved with trying to litigate and create legal structures to reduce that piracy stuff. But, but, the initial response, firstly, after these years of weird experimentation, the download business became a reality. And Apple, I think, um, still to some degree, um, is viewed as maybe the favorite son or favorite daughter that helped really build the actual building blocks of the digital music business. And I think if you really sit with a record label, senior most levels, digital strategist, whatever it might be, that eventually will come out, you know, and, and they may be a bit different than other players that are out in the market. And, and you're probably right, probably had more of a role or some role in, in, in expanding it, maybe their content and services well beyond music, basically, and being a player in all those areas. But, um, you know, the download business roughly ran from 2003 onwards. Um, one thing that was really important that kind of came out separately from that business and it came you know, internationally more than it did domestically. And it had a big role in my career too, was just basically the emergence of the mobile handset and that handset being a vehicle for media and entertainment consumption and early generations of products being music products like ringtones. And I'm not even talking like mass, I'm talking about like things that are like those little tonal things called polyphonics or monophonic ringtones. And that kind of came out from Europe, from Latin America, from Asia first. But um, that, I think, informed a lot of this as well. I and mean, then I started getting involved in our company's uh, Latin division around 2004 um, when BMG had bought Jive Records. And and during this time, it merged with Sony. And, and I had had all sorts of, like, kind of randomized requests from our Latin territories coming in to New York in my office in Times Square, folks from Mexico, from Brazil saying, you know, we have these things that are in our market. We don't know what the hell to do. Can you please help us? You know? And, and I sort of attached myself to that. And that's another maybe insight for the career builders out there. Find some of the under-resourced spots in your organization, attach yourself to it. And I kind of created a gig around that whole thing for myself in, in Miami, actually. 
and you guys will both get a kick out of me. They, they thought I was crazy. I was like, look, man, there's this whole division in Miami. It's a regional office. You guys aren't paying any attention to it in headquarters. You know, why don't you let me help our teams? And that's kind of what I did. That's how I got down there. And I, I was, uh, you know, sent down, made head of Latin digital business around 2005, uh, moved my family down to, to Miami, Coconut Grove, had a really beautiful life down there, Carl Gables area. And, um, spent another six years with the company building the Latin businesses. And at that time, I would tell you that the mobile handset was probably the primary thing in the world under the sun for us from a music perspective, because it had everything under it from ringtones to giant mobile carriers that you guys will be familiar with, like a America mobile and a Telcel and a Telefonica and places all over the Caribbean, like Digicel and all sorts of regional deals were possible to get music out um, to all kinds of markets from Mexico to Central America, you name it, even to Brazil to, you know, generate revenue around different types of mobile products. And I, I just had a blast doing that. Um, I got to experiment. I did some really fun stuff. I created a, a branded handset with the artist Shakira and I did one with Ricky Martin and we made tons of, I think we sold two and a half million years. You know, it's just something back. This is about 10, 11 years ago. Um, got the artist, huge endorsements. And it was it was just loads and loads of fun. And around this time, um, you know, these streaming services started to emerge. This is around 2006, 2007. And um, at least from my perspective, I mean, I'm just one voice. Like, I don't remember, like, I don't remember it being some, like, someone planting a flag and saying, streaming's the future. We got to do it. I, I don't ever remember anyone saying that actually. Um, I just remember that there were so many services that we were licensing. I think I had a chart at Sony just for mobile. And it, it must've, I think we had 300 types of mobile products that we were licensing everywhere from the U S to Indonesia and a zillion, you know, all sorts of crazy things that are so obscure ring back tones, video ringers. I don't even know. And, um, and so at these, at the time I remember Spotify coming through from Europe and, um, and we just said, look, we should make this happen. That there had been to be fair. Um, there were these sort of Uber handset type plays in the market. And I'm going to, this is, this is kind of in obscure inside baseball, but if you remember the company called Nokia, and uh, you guys probably remember Sony Ericsson from the tennis tournament in Miami, but Sony had a phone company too, venture we had. Um, there were these phones that were in the market that were sort of like between ringtones and all-you-can-eat streaming services that had, you know, just um, one was called Comes With Music. So if you get the phone, you get everything with it. And... Um, those were really big deals because we were getting paid by the handset. There was a pool. And I remember people planting flags about those. This is the future. This is great. And both those things failed pretty miserably, if I recall. And then, and then we sort of started setting up all these streaming services, like the, the on-demand ones, like Spotify, or um, there's another one called Deezer that quite popular outside the U.S. And services like Pandora or iHeart, you know, had been in the market because – they were able to operate under, you know, our, our copyright offices, non-interactive licensing, just they had radio services. And they weren't really on our radar, at least in the business side, if I recall, in a big way. They were just things that were out there that had been empowered by by the, the legal and, you know, landscape, basically. But we empowered the streaming services. We took equity in some of them. That was a big piece. 
uh, we had learned from things like MTV that we had also supported that we didn't necessarily benefit from, or at least I wasn't benefiting from it. And um, yeah, so that's sort of how it happened. And then there were things like YouTube that came along that hit us over the head too, that were like, oh my God, there's catalog usage for this artist that we, we don't even know if we've got it in our catalog, but can we get paid on it, you know, and, and what should we do about it? So there, there's a lot of questions like that, but um, yeah, it kind of the market transitioned to that at that point. Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, the attorneys got in there and they were able to parse out the kind of outliers and, and monetize, you know, a lot of this stuff. I, the yeah. reason why I mentioned Apple, though, and I said in the forefront, you know, the mobile is now the most watched screen and it has been for a couple of years, but also the whole kind of evolution into apps and being able to use your apps to stream music. And now, you know, you cast them to your TV and, and, and whatnot really is the biggest conduit in terms of, you know, being able to listen to your music, being able to access artists. And so it's really interesting to hear how this whole evolution happened and that whole movement happened. Um, but we're going to fast forward or I yeah. think that we're in this area to today. Yeah. And, you know, this yeah. whole evolution into what is now the streaming marketplace? What does that mean to an artist? How does how does that um, connect with the the greater audience? Is is one thing. So that's one part of it, and then the evolution. So what is happening with this whole new evolution towards the new marketplace? And you know, I'm going to employ you know what's happening with COVID as a part of that because that has yeah. transformed um, how we're consuming media. I'm going to say content music yeah. is, you know, is, 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 is a big part of that. So, yeah, well, there's a lot in there. I mean, again, I'll, I'll start with the music stuff to just, I mean, as if to the forward, you know, I mean, it's definitely, I still think it's a, you know, putting aside compensation models for a second, you know, um, if you're an artist, there's a greater degree of liberty and independence now and, different types of tools and platforms in the market that you can use directly. I think that can be empowering than there ever was before you, you, you know, you don't need to go through universal music to be on Spotify. If you're an independent artist, you know, there's no distribution chokehold and there's a zillion different ways to distribute yourself, whether it's through a tune core or a Mondo tune, or, you know, even an independent arm, of one of the major labels. Um, and I think that there's tons of interesting, digital marketing platforms that, that one can use as well. Um, and, but, you know, there's also at the same time, like, um, you know, and I've, I've got a, a close friend in, in one of the streaming services who's sort of, you know, in the, you would think it'd be the coolest role or the greatest role to curate all this content that's out there. And can you imagine with all the music coming at you these days, like how you would go about curating and prioritizing that? So that's got to be a, a really interesting and hard gig. And so there, there's so much content out there now, it's, it's harder and harder to break through. And, um, you know, and I think, I mean, you certainly heard the debate about what you get paid from one of the audio streaming services. So there's been, I know, a lot of debate about perhaps changing that model. They call something a user-centric model, if you will, that, that maybe could incrementally improve it. But I think that's, that's a hard thing. And I think that probably the harder thing now has just been how the pandemic has, has killed touring, you know, at least for, for, for the next year, perhaps, or maybe until 2022 is what some of the 
some of my industry brethren, Mark, Mark Geiger has actually said it publicly. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, when, when, when will that come back? And, and um, so live streaming has clearly exploded. I, I advise a, a live streaming platform, actually a really interesting, good one. And, and it's, it's been great working with it. Um, but I also know how heavy the competition is out there now for talent as well. So how do you break through on that front? It, it is a very, very hard one basically. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm still of the view that it's, it's, it's a greater and greater time. You know, you, you do have more opportunities as an artist. Um, you know, I, I will say on, maybe to touch a little bit, maybe closer to, to this world of film and television. You know, I mean, I think so many of us have just increased our consumption, right, of everything, you know, media-oriented, sitting in the living room during the pandemic. But I think production to some degree, for sure, has, has been disrupted. And if you're building a supply chain, that's got to be a, a key consideration as well. So there's been a, a ton of disruption from this across the whole ecosystem and um i don't you know i i don't know if um if it's going to get back to normal anytime soon so um the, the other thing i'd be remiss in not mentioning during this just time like um and again i i got music flavor to me but just um <clears throat> like this whole explosion of social music or social video and you know i've seen that evolve i i still help a great social music community called smule that uh um you know, has artists singing with, with stars, is the stars singing with, with, with their audiences in, in the most organic way possible. And I, I bring a lot of Latin artists to that platform, actually. Um, and, I mean, I've also seen all these other new things just flower from, from certainly from TikTok to Triller to, you know, Cameo to tons of these apps that are out there. And I think everyone from Instagram to Snap is bringing out their own, you know, social music or social video feature. And that to me seems like it's more about people connecting with, with artists and celebrities and communities and maybe less so around like our world of rights and licensing and, and management. That's a part of it, but it's not the central piece of it. And I, I, I think there's um, just a ton of interesting stuff there. And there's TikTok has got this thing that I guess before all this crazy stuff's happened to them with, with, with the, you know, with our government getting involved and maybe forcibly selling them. They have a music service that came out of, I want to say, India called Rezu that I've heard is just doing spectacular things with kind of fusing, you know, social media and streaming services. So, um, yeah, I think I think that's an area that keeps bubbling. Yeah. And you mentioned two. Well, you mentioned a few trends, but two kind of stick out to me that live streaming. And um, can you mention the live streaming uh, service that you work with? Sure. Know? No, sure. It's called, it's called dream stage and dream stage. Uh, it's just launched actually. And it's, it's actually, it's an interesting one. I, I work with, um, someone who was a boss and is a role model and a great guy and a colleague named Tomas Hessa, who was head of digital Sony music and Sony BMG. Um, and Jan Vogler, who is a classical Sony artist actually had founded it along with a guy named Scott Chasen out here in, uh, in Colorado. He's in, um, and that, that's one of, um, I think, and I'm not just saying it because I work with them, but one of the you know very best platform, and then it's premium only. So, what they and you know to be fair, others are trying to do is to recreate that live experience. And this is a beautiful platform. They've had um, you know a designer that works with Wes Anderson create the create the stage, and um, we've started with classical artists, but we're you know we're going to go out with some major artists pretty soon, actually, as well. And that's a ticketed admission, you know. And I will say. 
say that um, I'm going into great detail. The folks behind that one are, you know, very much acting like professional um, promoters, if you will. Um, and, you know, the, there might be elements like that artists would look for, like guarantees they can pay their production costs out of, you know, before they, they agree to a show. And I think, I think there's others in live streaming. I mean, Stage It has had a ton of publicity. Me. It's been around for a while. You know, Twitch, everyone knows. There's one out here called 311 that a good friend named Ty Roberts has launched that got more of a subscription model to it that I think are taking different approaches. I mean, there's some that are like almost homegrown where the artist is in his or her living room, whatever it might be. But I think the ones I'm kind of referring to are really professional productions. So, um, so but a very crowded space, very competitive. And I, I am seeing bidding wars already for artists, that sort of thing. Other thing, while I'm talking my, your ear off here, is just... You're um, supposed to be talking our ear off. All right, that's good to hear. <laughs> I was doing it to my teenager, they'd be throwing stuff at me already. And walk yeah. out of the room. But um, just this whole confluence of social communities and gaming and events and I'm talking Travis Scott on Fortnite or The Weeknd on TikTok or um, drive-in stuff. I just, I think that this area is enormous. And um, whether that's a, a VR or 3D oriented platform like, like, like Wave XR or, or it's Instagram, I mean, Timbaland and Swiss Beats are doing these Saturday Night Battles. The audiences for these things are just, you know, they're, they're unbelievable. And the business models are great too. Purchasing at purchasing, whatever it might be. I think that's a huge area. And I know from my own experience as, as a dad, you know, in the last two decades, as opposed to what you heard from me in the seventies and eighties, you know, social media games, this stuff means more to my kids than the new wave, you know, or what it means the same thing what new wave meant to me. It really resonates. So I think that's an enormous part of the future too. Yeah. And actually I have that in my notes and that was, you know, moving towards the tail end, uh, tail end of my notes. This is another two parter back to, you know, your social, uh, your social affront. Um, you know, you have little, little Nas X who came up through TikTok, actually, you know, and right. yeah, actually is one of the biggest artists in history. That's, pretty incredible to come up through a platform that wasn't as well known. And I, I think it went hand in hand because TikTok wasn't as well known when little Nas X came up and that helped TikTok in a big way to, to kind of grasp that explosion. But to see him come up through that platform was, was pretty inc incredible and really, you know, a marker of the times. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, TikTok used to be musically. And by the way, you know, th there's um, a lot of really current kind of hot stuff happening uh, at the highest levels, I think, of our government and, and that organization. I've been doing a bunch of media commentary on TV about it recently. And, uh, you know, it may, it may be that, you know, three or four English language territories of this entity we're talking about are forcibly excised, if you will, from, from ByteDance, the owner. And by the way, I don't necessarily think, I don't know what it's going to be. It could be a good thing. It's, sounds like an awkward thing right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I know from my own experience with social music and bringing artists in, um, it's not it's not as well under, it's certainly a, a new thing to get one's arms around, how it works and how to, you know, um, how to do it. And I think that's why you see Charlie D'Amelio or, you know, influencers doing doing better stuff necessarily than just some of the, the old school music artists. Yeah, um, and then the second part of it, to me, because, you know, I'm talking about, you know, this evolution and what comes to the forefront and how it comes to the forefront. My company works in VR and AR, 
we've been definitely trying to push the limits of, of that VR and AR sphere. But I think, you know, this whole kind of COVID cocoon is pushing a lot of, you know, what's happening in that sphere. So have you, do you have any thoughts on, you know, a movement in terms of, of VR, AR, I know that, you know, Travis Scott did the Fortnite thing, which was, you know, pretty yeah. cool. but a VR, AR kind of um, push in terms of, you know, this interaction with artists. I mean, I think, you know, the, so the VR. And that's virtual I mean, reality and augmented reality. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. Or 3D, or they call it XR now, extended reality. XR, yeah. But I think the, um, you know, there's a couple of thoughts on it. I mean, I, I, I support, I mean, I love the idea of it. Um, um, I also am a movement realist. I, I, you know, I did a little bit of work, you know, trying because I, I, in my my day to day, is as a consultant for different, you know, interests that retain me to go out and get artists or bring them partners or find ways to engage with them. And and the VR stuff has been tough, at least with some of the some of the music interest I see. There's a there's a little bit of an eye rolling factor there because there was so much hype around it, right? Three, four years ago. You guys know you live close to Magic Leap, whatever it is down there in Plantation. Yeah, so, that was you know, so you know yeah. you're right. So um but I think that there is some certainly a by the way, on the enterprise side of things, it's not so much music, but I think there's a real business in there for a lot of these interests. And then I do think, given what we're thinking, describing that in this whole social gaming confluence, there's a lot of potential there for artists and music. And I don't, you know, if, I mean, whether you have to have a headset on or whether you can do it on a phone, I think I saw this thing uh, a few months ago from this artist called Real Estate that had like, it was an AR app that like literally, I got my phone here, literally, you know, it was like, it just it came out of the phone basically, you know what I mean? And it was oh, the cool. coolest thing. Yeah. And it was like they're a little live concert on a tiny little concert on the phone. And um, so I think to the extent that you can make it universally easy, then I think that there's more and more opportunity there. And, um, you know, I mean, what I try and tell clients I work with, like, if we could do something with one of those platforms, let's let's do it on any platform. Like, I don't care if you have to have a headset on, if it's just get, a, get an audience around it, whether it's VR, AR, XR, or just do it online and people will pay attention to it. I think that's, that, that's, that's, that's a real thing. I mean, the um, just pure music standalone stuff. I know it's been a little bit of a struggle to get, you know, to get a lot of interest on board with that, but I, I'm a supporter of it. Um, also mentioned just spatial audio, which tracking from the music space, just as a raw tech piece of it is very interesting and you need to have that. And, um, and the studios, by the way, you know, can do cool stuff with, you know, 3D titles as well when they're rolling them out or Netflix can as well. So I think there's like avenues of exploitation across a lot of different media segments for, for VR and XR. Yeah, what we've been talking about, my creative director is doing a, um, a project with uh, Opera House in Switzerland. And so it's really, you know, up. Uh, the 3D version of the opera house and then performances and, you know, in kind of, you know, the 3D world and augmented world. But what I think could be kind of cool, we have a comic book and the comic book on some of the pages, you can point your phone at the comic book and you can see 
through the phone a 3D representation of, you know, one of the main characters riding a motorcycle and some stats and then some video. And so I think that those are going to be some of the more interesting activations. I mean, it would be, you know, in this in, in, in this front part of it, because, you know, equipment then the price point of equipment becomes an issue sometimes and then it, the costs come down. But, you know, it'd be really cool to see an artist, you know, you're looking through your phone and then you see a 3D representation of an artist there performing and For like sure. a little, you know, mini augmented music oh, video and, yeah. you know, those kind of things. So we've been exploring how to make that kind of stuff work. So I think, I that think that that's great. Cool. And I'm sure there's like, you know, look, the other thing I'd mentioned, you know, just going back to this artist independence, like, these days, we're hitting mostly on music, I know, in this conversation, but I can't imagine it's that different with, with actors, celebrities, other talent influencers. But, you know, these days, for example, you can talk to well, the artist directly, a manager, even a publicist or a marketer, um, sometimes the record label, you know, as well. And there's just so many avenues to go about bringing cool things like that around, basically, um, to do those things. And yeah, I'll go back to this little app I saw from real estate. I can't remember who did the AR implementation of it, but I mean, it definitely substituted and so i think i think that there has been a big loss not just in terms of business but in terms of you know the community experience and going to shows i mean i out here in la i love going to the hollywood bowl on, on you know on summer nights it's it's the best watch whatever the artist is with a glass of wine it's it's just really irreplaceable and i think that's a a very hard thing to have lost so um you know, and I, I've heard all sorts of projections, you know, um, when it comes back. But I still think it's probably going to be some time until it really comes back in in a big way. And e- even for me, if you want to watch some of these, like, with Global Citizen, whatever, some of these things are great to see, but it, it's not the same thing. Not the same you know? thing, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. maybe we can offline talk about, you know, some of the areas that we're, we're moving into. <laughs> Love to hear it. Yeah, we'll have to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it was, you know, really great to hear about your journey and to hear about, you know, what's happening now and then and future trends, because you've, you've been as much a part of um, helping to make a lot of these things move along, but also, you know, what's moving into, into the future. Um, so Thank there's you. three things, three final things. We have two questions sure. that we always ask our guests at the end, but I, I do have a, a third part and I'm going to leave with the third part. I don't know if this is going to be a new trend in Screen Heat Miami, but, um, you know, are, are there any things that you're really hopped up on, anything hot, anything that you feel uh, people should be plugged into right now? And that could be music, it could be TV, it could be in, you know, any industry. Um, well, that's a really great question. I mean, there's so many people that are plugged into into social video. I think I think that's um, you know that's that's probably not going to be a surprise surprise to anyone. I mean, I think the the stuff that I've seen with um, artificial intelligence has been just super fascinating to me. AI, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not just from the music perspective, but I think. Um, you know, I think that's something to really pay attention to. Um, you know, and I, I've done some work. Um, I've tried with, um, you know, basically with, you know, with my consultancy to work on newish stuff. And I've really tried consciously to, to move actually outside of music. We spent most of the time talking about music today. But um, the things I worked on with AI over the last two years, I've had a couple of um, 
kind of random things. I remember when I was with you in Miami um, at the film festival, I showed like these basic chat bots. But um, since that time, I've done a bunch of work with Microsoft that was more, probably more corporate in nature or marketing oriented work, but just the amount of industries that AI can be kind of applied to. And that can be everything from automotive manufacturing to inventory management to certainly to media consumption um, is, is fairly, fairly awe-inspiring. And I, I think it, I think it, I'm of the view that it does more good than um, that. That would be something that I think more people should be kind of, you know, re- really plugged into um, in a big way. Yeah. The second part, second part of your question was, sorry about that. Oh yeah. Uh, be, before we get to that, I just want to mention, and yeah. this is, this is to the, to the, um, to the point of AI and machine learning, something really cool I saw that they that they used in uh, the Mandalorian. Instead of using green screen, they used AI and machine learning to uh, cast the environments in in real time. So instead of the actors performing in a green screen environment, they had the actual environments to interact with and to to work with. And so they were able to shoot it in a way where those environments, they build sets around the environments and, you know, and so that, that, that's a great evolution in that. So the two parts, and I'll let JL uh, tee off with the first of, of this two-parter that we end up with. Oh yeah. So yeah, this is sort of our, our signature and Seth, again, this has been a great conversation. We probably could have gone on for another hour at least. You got to do that in person sometime. Yes. We'll we'll tape that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I said, maybe with a couple of adult beverages. That's (laughs) right. But, uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, this is obviously been a great journey and speaking of journeys, so our two part questions, and this has been a very sort of sci-fi conversation is if you were sort of a back to the future character and modern day Seth can go back to a very young Seth in DC, knowing what you know now, what advice would future Seth give to young Seth? Do not worry and sweat the small stuff. You know, I mean, I, I see this a lot with, uh, with my teenagers actually. And I, I think there's a, you know, technology is great by the way. And I, I was thinking about there, there are negative things to AI on the last question, which I didn't mention, but you know, it can also be enormously stress inducing, you know, and I think, you know, I think, uh, if there's a way to kind of shut down and focus, turn off that phone before you go to sleep, whatever it is, you know, and figure out a way to kind of embed some real life experiences and go out and don't, don't answer emails sometimes. And so I think, I think, um, you know, trying to try to keep the focus on lar- larger picture things as opposed to the small stuff. And this is more psychological advice, I think, than it is technical. But, um, you know, like I just know from my own professional career, sometimes I joke that I picked the wrong decade to work in the music industry or for a record <laughs> label, you know, because it was a decade before all the streaming stuff. Now it's a stable, good business. And you're, we're all sitting here talking about all these things you could do. But so when I worked at a record label at Sony, you know, one side of the house was burning down. I mean, you know, almost literally. And there were entire wraps of divisions being shut down, people being let go. I happened to work on the side that was growing. But, um, you know, it was enormously stressful. And I, and I think, um, I think you know, one thing I see now, because I've been an independent consultant happily, successfully for 10 years now, is to not, not get too much of your identity bound up in 
maybe the employer or, you know, the specific corporate environment you're in and try and appreciate what you're good at and gravitate towards that basically, you know, and I think if you listen to my story, I had to do some stuff and I say this to my kids a lot too, that, you know, you you may not be perfect in the specific gig you have, but if you keep working towards it, you'll build experience basically. And I think to kind of keep focused on that North star is a helpful thing. Now I had friends that, um, you know, went straight towards what they wanted in the most junior ways and rose very high, you know, in music, they may want to be an A&R, marketing, wherever it might be, and took the most junior level gigs, if you will, and worked their way up to that. And I think that's a great step if you can do it, if you can afford it, if you can find your way in, um, that's kind of empowering too, to do that. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, and I think it was said to me too, and I, I believe this, I still believe it from the Miami perspective, like the Latin American experience I had uh, really opened my eyes enormously to just so many different different ways of operating, cultural differences with the world of Latin music. And it would not have happened to me had I not gone down there. Sony really opened up a lot of doors just in terms of learning for me. And there's a, there's a big continent out there outside of Miami, as you know, and um, to think internationally and think broadly, because I, I know now, even in music, like the mix, kids don't necessarily care what country the music came from. They just want to hear a good groove, whether it's negatone or pop. And, and I, I think there's a, a, a way of opening yourself up to, to that, that um, if you do that, it can really help you down the road. So I know those are probably two or three random thoughts that help me. Yeah. So um... I think you might have already answered the the second part of this question within with, with within that. Um, but uh, the second part is for people who are now moving into this new environment, you know, and and this is for people that are you, you know just beginning, and also you know for people who are you know well within their careers. What advice would you give them um, in terms of you know? moving forward with their career? Well, I mean, the the biggest thing I always tell people is to try and look where there's um, like opportunity that isn't being covered, you know, like, so I would talk to a lot of young people. I know they want gigs and they, they, they go, I want to work at Amazon or I want to work at Apple or we to places that everyone knows where, when, you know, there's going to be a million people lining up, but you know, like there's a lot of other apps out there and things out there that are just as good. I'll, I'll mention an app called Triller that isn't so small anymore, but you know, has been exploding in popularity because of TikTok's issues. I think, I think I read they picked up, was it 80 million users just because TikTok was shut down last oh, month wow. in India. It's insane. And it's a Ryan Kavanaugh and a Mike Liu out here in LA it comes out of the hip hop community, but it's similar to TikTok and it's general market now, you know, I mean, you know, there's lots of, services like that film video music and i would just say to try and look for those under resourced things to try and help you know um rather than necessarily go go apply to the the one that everyone knows because you know, i think that's a really good model you know to to do that you know yeah and that's that's incredible advice i mean could you imagine being like you know employee number five at microsoft or you know employee number 10 at apple or, you know, and, and, and a lot of these companies. So, and especially if you're just starting out, you can sort of, you know, afford to, you know, take a fit, a, a fit of a start here and there and, you know, take, take you know, some chances. So yeah. that's, that, that's incredible advice. It, it's worked for me. And some of the interests I mentioned are very squarely, you know, uh, 
come from that model, that sourcing model. So, you know, network, network like crazy. I think, you know, making connections like this, we, we, I don't even know how we met. Jose Luis sought me out at one of these conferences and we've just been friends since then. And I, I think that's such an important, you know, uh, cocktail. I've never had a, I don't think maybe once or so a headhunter really get me a guy. You know, it's always come from networking and that's such a key thing. And, and, um, do it in person if you can. You know, I tell young people this all the time. Um, you know, I think that's just as important if you can do it, basically. I, I have a couple yeah. of young people that work for me out here in L.A., and they've reached out just through, like, networking, and it's made an impact on me, and I try and, you know, bring them in wherever I can. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really believe in that. I, I teach as well, so um, I have about eight students now. Uh, and I- Unbelievably, a lot of them are coming up with incredible ideas. You know, most of my students have really, really incredible ideas. And, you know, they're just starting, but who cares? You know, an incredible idea can come from someone who's seasoned. It can come from someone who's in their mid-career. It can come from someone, and we're all listening, you know, one way or the other. So I totally agree. They often, you know, I've done a few things out here um, with USC and UCLA. And by the way, I'd love to... I have a really nice little talk, whatever, that sort of roughly parallels this. It's sort of half the background, half opportunities for students. I'd love to do it at you at the U. I know, I know you're, you, you Miami, a proud alum. Um, and we've done a few like things where the, the students come up with these just fantastic ideas. Some of them, some of them ring bells from some of the discussions we've had. I'm like, Oh, did you know that there was a company that tried exactly that? And, and here's what happened, but they also have a, really refreshed perspective on it yeah um so yeah i think that's great yeah so we're listening and um here at screen heat miami we we feel uh, honored and privileged to have listened to you for this interview thanks a lot Seth. thanks guys for having me on i hope i didn't talk too much so you'll have to edit it down a little bit whatever that is not a screen heat miami problem yeah people need to plug in they need to hear it i mean you know really i learned a lot even and I've known you for a long time, so yeah. Well, I love I love talking to you guys, and I always your questions are great, and I hope I can see you soon. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll see you when I'm out there in LA or when you're back here. Cheers. There you go. Thank you very much. In the grove. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Have a good one, Seth. Okay, Seth. Boom. Seth gave it. Man, mm, I feel mm, like mm. I'm looking into a crystal ball. I'm looking backwards. I'm looking forwards. <laughs> I'm looking all around. Right, right. Call Absolutely. Seth every day. What's going to happen, man? Yeah. Set my no, stocks. You're just... <laughs> a lot of very interesting insights. You know, as a consultant, I'm sure that you know Seth is at the forefront of all this stuff. So you know, for you screen heaters that got to just experience that amazing interview, so many very powerful takeaways that, that we were just so happy that Seth did, did the program. He was great. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something else that was ahead of the game that was in the future that really, really knew how to get their finger on the pulse. Cobra Kai. Oh, now you're talking. The, the lone survivor. One, the lone survivor. <laughs> yes, Cobra Kai. Hi, my goodness, that Cobra bite. You were all over it. Wait, when it first came out, you were mm-hmm. like, Kevin, you have to watch this. 
This is it. Yeah. I mean, you you didn't never said it was the only YouTube Red show that was going to survive, but right. you did tell me to watch it and to get into it. So absolutely, and you know, it, to be fair, it was sort of a cult hit within a certain community when it was on YouTube. You know, I, I heard about it from family members. Oh, you got to watch the show, and I, I to be completely fair, I started to watch it. I lost my free trial on YouTube, so then I stopped watching it. <laughs> but I'm so happy that it moved over to Netflix which not only for my viewing purposes, but it has led to it becoming not only the number one show on Netflix and in the US, but apparently the number one streaming show right now in the world, worldwide. Whoa, wow. Uh-huh, big Man, that, that, that is something. And I, you know, I always, this is what I always say, you know, you can kind of go away once you've made your splash from the greater consciousness, but there's always a way back. There's always a way back. There I mean, is. that's really incredible. Just imagine, right. you know, you have uh, 20 years, 30 years in between this time span and the main actors, you know, I, I know that I've seen uh, throughout time um, the, uh, and I'm forgetting his name now, uh, You're talking Ralph Macchio? Ralph Macchio. Daniel Yeah, Yeah, I've seen <laughs> Ralph Macchio in, in many things. And, you know, he's kind of stood the test of time. I couldn't believe it. He's 58. He's 58. Yeah, he's 58. By the way, the actress that plays his wife in the series is 38. So he's doing well. Yeah, and yeah. You see them on screen. They look very sort of, not nothing against her. I mean, she looks fantastic no, for 38 her. as well. I mean, he does look older that, than her, but I mean, he, 58. You he's know? like, yeah, he, I don't know what dr water he's drinking out there in LA or wherever he lives, but I want some of that because he definitely has the this eternal youth about him. Yeah, so... I've seen him in things from time to time, but um, the antagonist, and you know, I, I can't remember his name. William right Zapka. Now. William Zapka. Yeah, William Zapka, I've not seen him in much. Nope. But nope, now, nope. two of the biggest stars in the world. I, yeah, and, and playing a character, again, that they first played when they were just coming up as teenagers, essentially, in the on early 80s. On a show that was on YouTube Red. Yeah. Of oh, all she, things. Uh, yeah, and, and a very, when you watch it, the production value, you could tell it was a, a low-budgeted show, yeah. but, and, and, you know, not perfect at all as a series, you know, but, but man, it has a heart. It's so, it feels so authentic. It just kind of draws you into the life of these characters. Uh, and it just kind of throws you back into that time period. And, and I think even for younger viewers, you know, really kind of getting a sense of, of really what, to me, 80s cinema was about. It was about heart and about emotion and, and kick-ass music. <laughs> That's it. Those are the only three elements. There's nothing All else. you needed for a hit movie <laughs> in the 80s. But, but they've done such a good job of kind of bringing those core elements back and doing something brilliant story-wise, which is to really flip the script and tell it from essentially William Zapka, who was the original villain in the first movie, telling it from his perspective, going back, connecting the dots and showing that it wasn't black and white. There were a lot of shades right. of gray there. Yeah. You know? And, so. and, it's, and, it's, and it's conflict on both sides, you know? Mm -hmm. It also has Ralph Macchio's character not being, you know, totally the goody-goody that right. yeah. he was known for. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of conflict there. And, I, and that, I think that that also is part and parcel to the strength of that story. So you have right. the strength of the story of the movies. There were three of them, maybe mm -hmm. four, but I, th I know for sure three. 
And then the strength of the show itself that has many layers. And so, Multiple but it has layers. something for everyone, you know, it has yeah. someone, something for the older folks and the nostalgia. It has a younger thread, of course, you know, oh, yeah. so it has something for the younger, younger audience. It has something for the, you know, the rejects, not the rejects, that's wrong. That's what they call them in the show. <laughs> right. But, you know, I had a point in, in my life where I was, you know, a little bit uh, not as hip, you know, I had glasses, I lived in Kentucky at, you know, black kid in Kentucky with the Southern accent moving into the city, you know, so I, I had um, some of those challenges myself. So, you know, I can, I can really relate. And so yeah. ultimately th that's what big shows and big movies have the ability to do. Black Panther, we mentioned that at the top of the key that, you know, they connect with the yeah. wider audience. They connect with a lot of people on a lot of different layers. And that's what Cobra Kai has done. And now it has a comeuppance because season three has already been announced. And I'm just waiting to see what the production value is gonna be on season three. Oh yeah, so yeah, season three apparently according to the creators has been shot and edited. They're just waiting for Netflix to pull the trigger. Uh, season four will probably go into production next year, but they're saying now, originally I think season three was supposed to come out this year, but Netflix is pushing it to 2021. Uh, so I'm, I think I'm, may start a, a an online petition to, to move it up even sooner because you know if, if if you've seen the first two seasons i won't give anything away but there's a cliffhanger there that i got to know i just yeah, got you to know, know they have to stretch that content out they're stretching yeah. that content out as much as they can so yeah they're they're definitely milking it and that makes all the sense in the world particularly because of the shutdown they need to stretch yeah. out their energy but you know really what a way to bring the entire karate kid library of content back to life in such a powerful way and and you know just kind of bring everything full circle there was a selfie that ralph macho posted on his facebook page i think where apparently initially I think this is when I just got to deal with Sony. They pitched it to Netflix first. And there's oh. actually from, Yeah. So three years ago, there's a selfie of them outside of the Netflix headquarters in LA. And it's Ralph and I believe uh, William, who plays the villain, now hero, anti-hero, along with the two creators outside of having just pitched the show to Netflix. Wow. And they said, it took us three years, but we finally got back to where we were supposed to be. <laughs> That's great. Um, that's awesome. Comeback yeah. kid. Comeback kid. Yeah, absolutely. I, I we mean, got another comeback kid, though. I, we, we could spend an entire Screen Heat episode just talking about this show. But, yes, we have another comeback story before we sign off. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator's back. The Terminator. He's uh, his first ever starring role in a TV. Talk about the golden age of television. Uh, he is going to be starring in a television series. This is an action drama produced by Skydance Television, uh, where where Arnie will be making his TV debut as a in a global what they're calling a global spy adventure in a father daughter uh, story. So it's going to be interesting. Obviously, Arnie plays the father, not the daughter, uh, and it's it's interesting to see how how you know. Talk about the 80s. None of these big 80s action stars uh, would have been caught dead doing a TV series back in the 80s, no. early 90s. Yeah, and but now, everyone's doing TV. I mean, everyone's doing TV. Scorsese, when Scorsese, when Scorsese co signs on it, what are you going to say? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he directed the pilot for Boardwalk Empire. So it's like all these heavyweights in Hollywood are going the TV route or the streaming route. 
Uh, and they're starting to realize that it's really series now is just a way of opening the story up of giving yeah. you more hours of content, but with the same level of quality that the big films had, you know, in well, yesterday. Netflix is up today. the game too, because you, the budgets are on level with, you know, what you would get in, in doing a feature film. And yeah. then everyone else kind of had to step up their game in terms of budgets. HBO always, you know, has had the higher budgets. And HBO, I think more than anyone, back from back in the days until now, they were able to get some of the bigger stars to do one-offs you know, limited series yeah. and those kinds of things, because everyone knew that if you did an HBO thing, it wouldn't sell your reputation because they were always known for the higher quality standard fare. Right. So, right. Yeah. I, premium, premium television. That's yeah. right. Premium television. That's right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we'll see where it goes. They're actually making the rounds now to the streamers, uh, Arnold and the Skydance team to pitch the show. So we may get a similar selfie outside of Netflix or Amazon. We'll see. We'll see who <laughs> picks it up it or who goes, doesn't pick period. it up. <laughs> yeah, let's just yeah, let's just hope that it gets picked up. Period. I um, think I, it will. I did want to end this with one thing that um, we we had not previously talked about, which is a show that is my favorite. This is my favorite show right now on television, and maybe one of my favorite shows in terms of the sci-fi. I call that, you know, I, I teach. So my students, we talk about, there's a chapter that we talk about genre. And in that chapter, I always draw out a pie chart. And my pie chart has to do with the breakdown of the genres of feature films and the percentage of feature films in that particular genre. So when you look at the top 10 films, Seven of the top 10 films are fantasy, sci-fi, comic-based films. And then the other three, which uh, Fast and the Furious is action-adventure, you have have, um, The Lion King is actually in that 10. But I do kind of consider that still in that comic, sci-fi, fantasy realm. And then you have, um, now I'm forgetting the name of the movie, with Leonardo DiCaprio, um on the ship titanic and then you have titanic out of the top 20 60 percent of them are comic sci-fi fantasy films so it's the biggest genre it's the biggest money making genre so when you talk about film and you talk about television uh or you know this episodic content i'm always looking for shows that break the mold and for me my favorite show right now is a show called Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, which is on HBO. I love it. And being a black person, you know, we really haven't seen a show like this. One thing when you're black, you're always on the edge of your seat, wondering if the black person is going to make it to the end of the movie, <laughs> you know? So what's really great about this in particular and you can also say the watchman which is nominated for more emmys than any other show i think it's 22 emmys um i i love the watchman too lindelof as we spoke of in kyle patrick alvarez podcast he always knocks it out of the park and he really did with the watchman but i I actually i like lovecraft country uh just a notch bit more um it really is from the beginning to end uh more within you know, this Pan-African diaspora. And it touches upon so many things, of course, historical references, and everything from, it takes place in the uh, 1950s. So everything, it's a period piece, 
And just like another one of our favorite shows that HBO uh, just came out with, it really has the costume design, the set design, you know, everything is on point, but the acting and the story is unparalleled. It's unique in so many different ways. And for, again, you know, being a black male, but just, you know, being a black person, it showcases a lot of depth that you don't often see in, in black characters in films that aren't within, you know, the diaspora, which is, you know, a strong black love story that isn't pandering. I mentioned, you know, pandering in, in terms of, you know, Milan and women, but, you know, a strong love story that's not pandering. Um, you have the strength of characters. You have characters that are conflicted without being too conflicted on one way or the other. Um, and, you know, Dean would love this. The visual effects is really, uh, you know, on par with anything that's out there. So, you know, on every single level, this really just knocks it out, out of the park, the acting, um, you know, on every level. It's a, a brilliant film, and I anticipate, you know, when the Emmys come around next year, this one is going to be one that's nominated on, there on you a go. lot of different levels. So, Got to put it in the queue. And, uh, and yeah, for sure. It sounds like an interesting show. I've heard some buzz about it. Haven't gotten around to that one just yet, but I'm sure I will soon. Um, but, yeah, definitely. And then one last quick shout-out, I think, before we go. If you haven't done so already, Stream Critical Thinking. It is now available yes! across all platforms. There you go. We should have... Hit that at the top of the key. Miami's well. own film, Made in Dade, directed by John Leguizamo, produced by Carlo Berkowitz, who you can find in one of our interviews on Screen Heat Miami. So I say stream the interview, rent the movie, support the local film industry. Saw the movie, it's great. Big ups, John Leguizamo. We need to get you on Screen Heat Miami. You crushed yes. it, both the Absolutely. acting and, and, and the directing. You know, so on, on every level, you know, that, that film really does it. So yeah, and we'll tease it. We'll we'll talk about it a little more on the next one at the top of the hour. Uh, but I think that yeah, there's a lot, so much going on. There's so hard to break through all the amazing content. Uh, but that's that's what we do. We keep those screens hot. That's how we do it. So until <laughs> next right. week, JL Martinez, Kevin Sharpley, JL Martinez, <laughs> Screen Heat, darling. Bye, y'all.